Um, we started talking about uh, what it looks like to, uh, to experience um, the ability to break away from our sin. And so um, we, we said that um, we uh, experience this uh, breakaway living, if you will. Uh, we experience the, the ability to say no to our sin when we begin to, to believe rightly. And so last week we were in Romans chapter five um, and, and we uh, looked at the beginning of believing rightly starts with understanding who we are in Christ and an under, uh, understanding um, that, that uh, Jesus it, it has set us free. I was thinking about this this week, and I think I've told some of you this story before, but um, when I was in my first year of college, I did some odd jobs, and one of the jobs I did was for a guy named Paul Buber. Paul moved into a new house on about a three-acre plot of land, and and we're, I was doing some work for him on some renovation and different things. He was getting the place ready to to rent out parts of, of this big, huge house uh, in apartments, and he had bought his daughter a, uh, a new puppy, and he said, Hey, I, I need some help. Um, I, I don't want to put fence all the way around this three acres, uh, but would you help me put in an invisible fence? And so it, it wasn't really all that hard. It was dig a little trench all the way along the perimeter and then lay this wire down and cover it up. So it was, it was pretty simple and really able to get it done in a day and, and laid all this wire down and he connected it up. And then he put the collar on the dog called the dog and said, here boy, come on. And the dog came running up rawr, 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 and then, and it, it jumped backwards. And, um, and I was like, wow, that thing really works. You know, like that's pretty amazing. And so uh, kind of over the next couple of days as we were working, wherever we were working out around the edge of the, the yard, we'd call the dog here boy. And the dog would cry and then, and we noticed that over time, the dog began to either smell or sense or something that this zap was coming and it would not come within six feet of, of that invisible fence. It just, it's like it understood that there was a barrier and it very quickly adjusted to where that barrier was and it wouldn't, it, there was no fool in that dog when we'd call, it, it wasn't coming, right? Um so like eight years later, uh, Tanya and I were married. We moved into upstate New York and we were looking for an apartment to rent. And we ended up renting from Paul Boober. And uh, I said, hey, hey, Paul, I see the, the collar still on the dog. Um, I guess that that invisible fence is working out. And he said, you'll never believe this. He's like, but the, the year after we put that thing in, we got this torrential rain and it, it, it rained. He's like, you know, we were wondering if we need to start like, you know, putting the animals in two by two. And, and he said the, the creek behind the house completely flooded the backyard. It came all the way up to the house and it shorted out the entire fence. And he said, um, when that happened, something amazing happened. And that is the dog was wearing the collar and it still believed that that thing was live and it still would not go anywhere near where the fence had been. He said, I guess it's like um, if you go to the circus and you see an elephant with a, a shackle around its leg and they put this little tiny tent peg in and somehow the elephant like doesn't roll go away. It's because they do that when the elephant's really small. And, and when they first put that peg in, the elephant absolutely can't go anywhere. And as it gets older, it doesn't know that it's become bigger. It doesn't know that it's become stronger. And it doesn't know it could just rip that tent peg right out and walk away. It just lives 
with the lie that, that this thing's going to hold it back. And he said, my dog is living a lie and I love it. Right. I think when, when we picture that, we kind of have to picture what it is that we were talking about last week and, and what it is we experience in our life. The, the power of sin has been turned off. And yet sin is like a collar around our neck. Sin is this thing that is, it's, it's touching our flesh and we have this flesh that Adam gave us. But if we are Christians, then we are in Christ and we are a new creation. And we are a new creation that still has a collar on. And that collar is constantly telling us that, that we are under its power, but it's a lie. And we believe that lie. Last week, we started in Romans chapter five, and we said that we are born in Adam. And when we were born in Adam, um, all, all that was true of Adam is true of us. That, that when he sinned, we sinned with him. And we sin and we, because we are sinners, because we were in Adam, and Adam sinned, and, and it passed to all men. And, and in the same way, we are now in Christ. And when we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Second Peter says that we are partakers of, of a divine nature. That, that is, we are completely new. We are completely changed. So we have the same relationship now to God as Jesus has. But this is the part that we don't often hold on to. And that is, we have the same relationship to sin that Jesus has. It, it, we celebrate every week and we do communion and we, we understand, yes, we have the same relationship to God as Jesus. And we thank the Lord for that. And we praise him for saving us. But we don't often, because our experience tells us otherwise. Our experience says, no, I, I don't have the same relationship to sin as Jesus because I sin and he doesn't, right? But when we were in Adam, um, uh, we had the same relationship to sin as Adam has. But now Romans chapter five and Romans chapter six, where we're going to be today, tell us that, that we do have the same relationship to sin as, as Jesus. And, and if we ask ourselves like, well, how come I don't feel free, right? Um, why do I sin? How come um, if I'm free from sin's penalty and sin's power, how come I'm not free from sin's practice? Um, why is it that, that when I feel certain things, I feel like I have to do certain actions? Um, why is it when I'm lonely or I'm insecure or I'm tempted or whatever the thing is, I, I, I do the same things over and over. And, and Romans chapter six, verse one, begins with a question. And it's a question that, that actually um, uh, we, we could go back into Romans chapter five to see why he's asking the question. But in Romans chapter six, let's see if I can make the slide go. There we go. Romans chapter six, verse one. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Why would he ask that question? Shall, shall we continue in sin? Should we continually sin that grace may abound? Well, in Romans chapter five, the end of Romans chapter five, it says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that sin reigned from in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. So he says, look, um, what we have experienced is that, that no matter how much sin we have, there's grace to cover it. And, and the bigger the sinner, the more grace there is. And you got to remember who's writing Romans. It's Paul. It's a guy who went around persecuting and killing Christians. And so he says, look, I was the chief of sinners and God's grace 
rose to meet it and surpassed it. And so he says, what shall we say then? Should we continually sin so grace may just abound more and more? And he says, absolutely not. By no means. It's This is the strongest possible way to say, no, it's, it's, he's right on the border of, it's so strong and so harsh, it would be right on the border of swearing and saying, no, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, when you read this verse, you have to understand there's no water in it. Um, when he talks about being baptized into Christ Jesus, what he's saying is we have this symbol of baptism. And this symbol of baptism is that we were buried with Christ and we rose to walk in new, new life. And he is saying we were identified with Jesus in his death and we were identified with Jesus in his resurrection. So he, when he says baptized, he's saying identified, saturated. And, and, and he, he goes on, he says, we were buried therefore with him by identification into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, if we have been identified with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We understand this, right? Um, we are dead to sin in principle. We, it, because, and we talk about this often, we go, hey, we were justified and we are being sanctified and one day we will be glorified. And all of that is salvation, that we were saved positionally and we are being saved practically. And one day we will be saved perfectly, right? And, and, and there's kind of these three stages, but in separating them out that way, sometimes we forget the fact that, that part of that sanctification process is that we theoretically, like in, in principle, we are already completely dead to sin. And, and the, the idea is that, that because we are in principle dead to sin, we should then be in practice dead to sin. But we go, that doesn't line up with our experience, right? And so this, these first few verses, he's, he's recapping what he said in Romans chapter five, that, that sin, you know, is there, that grace has abounded to cover, that we have died to sin and we can no longer live in it, that we've been placed in Christ, and which means that, that, that we were placed in his death and our sin died. And, and once you have died, sin has no control on you, no matter who you are, right? And anyone one who dies is free from sin. So we, in principle, are free from sin. But then he goes into Romans chapter 6, verse 8, and he says that, that we should be dead to sin in practice. He says, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives 
to God. And so he begins to, to kind of unpack this and say, look, we if we have died with Christ, really it's since we have died with Christ, um, then we also will live with him. And sin does not have mastery over us. It is not our master. It does not control us. It is not our king. It is not our ruler. We don't have to submit to it. And, and when we read these verses, we, we tend to think like, I don't know if this is true. And the reason we ask that is because it doesn't line up with our experience. We have been deceived by sin and we think it's me versus God. And the truth is it's not me versus God. We have these conversations in our head and our head says like, I know what God wants me to do is X, but what I want is why. I know what God wants me to do is pursue oneness with my spouse, but what I want is to vent my frustration. I know what God wants me to do is discipline myself to godliness, but what I want is to pursue the world's pleasures. And when we phrase things that way and we say it's me against God, we are repeating a lie. And and it's because if I were to ask you, do you, do you really want to vent at your wife? Do you really not want to have oneness with your wife? Do you really like just want to blow off steam and say whatever you, you think and, and, and hurt her and then experience all the things that go with that, all the, the pain, all the conflict resolution, all of the, the, the hurt that goes on and you'd go, well, no, I don't really want that. I just want to feel better for a minute to, to say what I actually think. And, and it's because you are identifying what your sin is calling you to do. It's the, the collar around your neck and it's touching your flesh and it's saying, hey, go back to the old patterns, go back to, because this is who you are. And when you believe it, you are, you are believing a lie. You're believing a lie that you are not a partaker of a divine nature, that you are the partaker of a fleshly nature, and that you are still an Adam, and that you are not in Jesus. And so um, he is calling us to identify with God through Christ and and to say, look, I, you aren't your sin. You, that your sin doesn't define you. It's not you. They're are not two of you. One of the, the, I think, dangerous things that has been taught, I mean, I was taught this my first year of Bible college. Um, somebody came in and they said, look, you've got two natures. You've got an old nature and a new nature. And it's just like putting two dogs in a pen that hate each other. And they're going to fight. And which one's going to win? The one you feed the most. And so it set me up for this like schizophrenic Christianity where, where I thought I had two natures. I don't have two natures. I'm a partaker in a divine nature. And because I'm a partaker in a divine nature, I only have one nature. My old nature died with Jesus and I was raised in Christ. Now I still have the flesh that was passed on from Adam and the flesh that was passed down from Adam still has the collar around its neck. And it's still reminding me of the patterns that my mind and my heart used to go, but it is not who I am. I am alive to God in Jesus Christ. And so are you. And so Paul begins to personify sin and he begins to personify death. And he says, look, these are things that you can address that are outside you. They are not who you are and they are not who God is. Sin is not you. And you can say no sin and you can speak to your sin and say, you'd have no rule over me. And you can begin to yield your members to God and say, God, I've just said no to sin and I want to say yes to you. And so he begins to personify this in a way that, that gives us an, a strategy for dealing with sin. You may think this is absolutely nuts, but 
but try it for a week. When, when sin comes along and says, can I have your eyes for a minute? You begin to speak to your sin and you say, no, you, you sin, you cannot have my eyes for a minute. My eyes belong to someone else. When sin comes along and says, hey, can I have your mouth and say something that, that will just sting? No, sin, you don't have my mouth. It's not yours. I'm not under your mastery. And when you begin to speak to your sin like it's something else, you begin to live in a freedom that that is different than what you might normally experience because you begin to believe the truth. That sin is not me. I am a partaker in a divine nature. Now, you might sound nuts if you do this, but you will begin to, to actually live free. And, and so he goes on, he says, so you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. So first he says, look, you have to count yourself dead to sin and alive for Christ. You, you, this word consider is an accounting word. It's you must account rightly. You must put it in the right column. You must see yourself in the right way. Those of us who, um, the kids wouldn't understand this, but but those of us who uh, we were given a debit card at some point, we had a checking account and we didn't have any kind of debit card. We might have had a credit card, but but somewhere in the 90s, they began to say, and here's your debit card. And um, and I remember they gave me the debit card and I thought, I don't know how to manage this thing. You know, there was no online banking um, or if there was, I certainly didn't have it. And there was no, you know, hook your bank account to QuickBooks and, and then you can just go in and see how everything playing out. When I would spend with my debit card, I would have to take that receipt home and write it down in the ledger, right? And, and I kept it in my checkbook, all of my checks. And then all of my point of sales went into my checkbook so I could track it. That was the only way I could figure out what was in my bank account. And I remember one time when Tanya and I first got married, she said, hey, I'm going to the grocery store. Which account do you want me to pull things out of? And I opened up the checkbook and I went, oh no, there's, there's not enough in there for groceries. And it's because I had not recorded a direct deposit. And, and that direct deposit, there was actually money in the account, but I had not accounted for it rightly. And because I had not accounted for it rightly, all of a sudden there was this moment of panic of we're not going to be able to buy groceries because I was believing wrongly about what was in my checking account, right? It's, it's the same way. When, when, when he says, you must account, you must consider, you must reckon, you must count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. You, you have to reckon this rightly. You have to put things in the right column. Your sin does not control you. You are alive to God in Jesus Christ. So let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Your sin has no control over you. It is not the king of your life. You have a new king to make you obey its passions. It says, do not present your members as sins. Like, don't come before like it's your king and say, here are my members as instruments for unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. This, there's, this is something you should do in the morning. In, in the morning, like I, when I was in college, they told me get up in the morning and, and pray through the armor of God and, and, and put on the armor of God. Much more practically was to stand in front of a mirror and say, God, these are your eyes. 
allow them to only take in what what is is okay like this is your mouth allow it only to speak words of grace these are your ears allow them only to 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 listen to what's good and edifying and not to take in gossip and and, and slander Lord, these are your hands what do you want them to do today Lord, these are your feet where do you want me to walk today where do you want me to go today and and you begin to present your bodies as instruments of righteousness every day and you say lord this is this is all yours. And when sin comes along and says, I want your hands, I want your feet, I want your eyes, you go, no, 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 I've already given those to the king. They, they are not yours to have. Sin, you don't have any rule over them. And present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And so he just lays it out and says, look, you need to have a correct accounting. And, and then uh, you, you need to have correct actions. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? So he's asking a question like he did at the beginning. What shall we say then? Shall we continually sin that grace might abound? And then he comes back here. He goes, look, what about now? Or should we occasionally sin because we're under grace? And his response is the same adamant, absolutely not, by no means. God forbid that, that this be true. And, and he begins to lay out for us what correct actions are. We, we start with correct assumptions, we move to correct accounting, and then we, we go to correct actions. And he, and he says, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are a slave to whom the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And so it's interesting when he asks this question and he says, are we to occasionally sin because we're not under law, but under grace? No. And, and what he could have done is he could have said, if, if you do that, then you're not going to heaven when you die, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't ask about salvation. He, he, what he comments about is knowledge. And he says, do you not know? And, and what he's talking to a, a group of Romans, right? The Romans who had the Gnostics, who the Gnostics would tell you, you're saved by what you know. And he's, not, he's, he's kind of poking them. This is the second time in this chapter, he asks a question, should we continue in sin that grace might abound? By no means, do you not know? And then he says, should we occasionally sin that grace, the, the, because we're under grace and not under law? By no means, do you not know? It's the same pattern. And he's saying, look, it's, it's about what you know. And, and he, he doesn't say like, hey, you, you're, you're going to lose your salvation. He instead says, haven't you experienced what's true? Haven't you experienced that when you present your members as instruments of, of unrighteousness, that you experience death? Haven't you experienced this already? And, and what he is, is saying is, look, there are no independent agents. When we um, uh, before we come to know Christ, we tend to think like I'm free. I can do whatever I want. I'm, I'm not obligated to anybody, but the truth is you're not free. The truth is that you are enslaved to your sin 
And you can't say no to your sin because your sin and you are the same thing. You are still in Adam and everything that's true about Adam is true about you. But at the point where you are no longer a slave to sin, then, then all of a sudden you're actually free for the first time ever. And you have the ability to go, no, I'm not going to do that. That's not who I am. I'm alive to God in Christ. And everything that's true about Christ is true about me. I have the same relationship to God as Jesus does. I have the same relationship to sin that Jesus does. And so he says, look, um, anyone, uh, if you present yourself as slaves, then you're a slave to the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death. And think about this. Death is the shadow of sin. Everywhere sin goes, death follows. And you go, well, it might not be immediate physical death, but there's lots of little deaths along the way that you can die. You can die financially. You can die relationally. You can die. And there's, there's so many different ways that you can experience the shriveling of your joy, the shriveling of, of your hope, the shriveling of your love in life. All of that is death. And it is the shadow that follows sin. And when we sin, that shadow follows us. And so he says, um, you have been set free. And, and he says, thanks be to God that you were once slaves to sin, but have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, which you were committed and having been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Now, I, when, when we were living in Dallas, I had been working for a dot-com and suddenly the dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s and everybody was scrambling for work. And, and I, in, in fear, I took a job I didn't want to take. It was with a company I didn't like. It was for a boss who used intimidation tactics and scare tactics. And he just, he was not a good person to work for. And it was in an environment I didn't want to work in. It was a, a bullpen kind of high pressure. Um, I did not want to take this job, but I was fearful and I was afraid. We had bought a house the year before and I thought I, I just have to take something. And so I took this job. And, and it was the weekend before I was supposed to start. And Tanya and I had gotten away. Um, we were at a church retreat and, and we were Sunday morning, we're doing our quiet time. And I read, he has not given you the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound, sound mind. And I looked up at Tanya and I said, I'm not supposed to take this job. I'm not supposed to, to go into this role. Um, I'm, I'm taking it out of fear. And what I really believe is that God is calling me to ministry, that God is calling me to full-time service, but I don't have a ministry lined up. I don't have a path forward. I don't, I, I, I haven't even finished seminary, but I feel this draw and I feel like it's not faith, but fear that's driving me to take this job. And Tanya said, then don't take it. I was like, well, I already took it. And she's like, well, you know, call them and tell them you're not coming tomorrow. I was like, no, it's, it's supposed to start tomorrow. And, and she said, okay, we'll figure it out. And I, I said, well, how are we going to put food on the table? And I, all the fear, the long story short, I started the job. I went in and I hated that job. I hated where I worked. I hated the way that my boss treated us. I hated the environment. The, the people were just so cutthroat and mean. It was, it was everything that I wouldn't want to work in. And for a year, this went on. And I kept looking for work and couldn't find anything. And I kept feeling this sense of like, oh man, you did this to yourself. And, and about a year in, 
um, 9-11 happened and all of a sudden the economy shrunk. Nobody's hiring people. I'm working, I'm managing an executive search firm and, and the people are, are, you know, like it's all they can do to, to pay their bills. And, and our company comes to me and they go, Hey Tim, we need you to take a pay cut in order to keep our Dallas office profitable. We're going to cut your pay by $25,000. I thought, okay. They're like, and we need everybody to start wearing suits to work every day. Cause we think it'll make you more productive. I was like, wait, let me get this straight. You're going to cut my paycheck by 25,000, but I have to buy a closet full of suits. Yes. So three months of, of, and, and things are getting tight. And, um, Three months later, they come back. Hey, we need to cut your paycheck again by another $25,000. And all of a sudden, there's there's hardly enough money to, to be able to pay the bills. Tanya and I go down to, we're buying a dozen eggs for 99 cents. And back then, peanut butter and jelly was still cheap. Um, and so we were living for like six months on eggs and peanut butter and jelly. And, and at that point, I was desperately looking for work. And I began to network out with all my friends. Well, one of my friends thought he was doing me a favor. And he, he had been asked by a, a company like, hey, would you be interested in coming to work here? And he had just gotten a new job. He goes, no, but I tell you what, my buddy, Tim, looking and you should reach out to him. And he copied me at work. Well, this firm, like they read every email. And so I saw that and thought, oh no. So I tried to preemptively call my boss like, hey, you know, like, I don't know what Jerry was thinking, um, but my boss didn't pick up. And then he didn't pick up the next day. And on the third day, I walk into the office who's standing there, Ed, my boss. And I knew what was coming. And so I said, hey, Ed, you could have just returned my calls. And he Tim, sit down. Like, how could you do this to us? Um, you're looking for work. And I was like, Ed, how can I do this to you? I've been living on eggs and peanut butter and jelly for six months. I Like, I had to look for work. And he was like, I can't believe it. You let us down. You, I can't believe you. Did. And this month, you're the top salesperson in the whole country. And, and we have to let you go because you're looking for work. And I was like, as soon as he said, we have to let you go, I sat back and I was like, okay, thank you. He's like, what do you mean? Thank you. I was like, I feel so relieved. I'm, I have never liked this job. And, and I'm so glad that I get to leave and I'm going to be okay. And, and so that weekend, Tanya and I were at a, another church uh, event and we prayed about it. And we said, you know what, we're going to do things very different this time. And I'm, I'm going to get up and I'm going to look for work full time, um, but I'm going to work a nine hour day. And, and the first hour of my day, I'm just going to spend praying. I'm going to spend that first hour just asking the Lord to guide me, direct me, show me and, and help me not to live from fear, but to live from faith. And so I'm, I'm going to take this, you know, like this very seriously. So Monday morning, get up um, with Tanya. She's heading off to work. By seven o'clock, she leaves for work. And by seven o'clock, I'm sitting at my desk. And for the first hour, I just pray. And then at eight o'clock, I go on the computer. I start filing for unemployment. I begin networking. I build my resume out. I work for eight hours and I'm done. Tuesday comes seven o'clock. I'm sitting at my desk. I spend an hour praying. And then I, I get up at eight o'clock from my desk. I go to get a cup of coffee. And while I'm going to get the cup of coffee, the phone rings. Hey, Tim, it's Kim from Jenkins and Gilcrest. I heard what happened. That's terrible. And I said, hey, Kim, it's okay. God is not going to let me down. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or the seed begging bread. I've been praying and I have absolute confidence that God is going to provide a job. And she said, 
he doesn't have to, I have a job for you. And I remember kind of laughing at the way that she said it, but, but she said, literally someone quit this morning with no notice and we desperately need someone in today. Can you come right now? And I was already showered and dressed for the day. And I said, let me grab a, a tie and my jacket and I'm coming in. And I drove in and I started a new job. And when I started the new job, it was in a great environment with great people. They brought me in as a contractor and said, hey, we want you to have as much freedom to come and go as you want. And uh, and they offered me pay that was higher than my last job's original paycheck. And there was it was everything I could imagine, a new job, better responsibilities, better people, better paycheck. I was super excited. Now imagine if a week went by and I was working my new job and I was excited about my new job. And then I got a phone call and it was Ed from my old job. And Ed said, hey, Tim, I really need you to do this today. I need you to get this thing done for us. Don't let us down. Uh, we're counting on you. You better make this happen. If I had gotten that phone call, I'd have been like, Ed, are you kidding me? I don't work for you. Why would I do, why would I call my new boss who I like? Why would I call my new job and go, I'm sorry, Ed called. And I have to, I have to do what he said, right? When we, as people who have been set free from sin and we have a new master, a new king, a, a new job, a new group of people, a new situation, everything is different. And then we get the phone call. And the phone call is, I need your eyes. I need your ears. I need your mouth. I need your hands. I need your feet. And we go, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. Sin called. It's insanity. It's absolute insanity. Why would we ever do that? And, and Paul says, look, having been set free from sin, you've become slaves to righteousness. You have a new boss and you have a new title and you have a new paycheck and everything's different. And, and so he, he says, look, it should all change. There's something in human nature that, that can't seem to get to the change. Think about June 19th, 1865. June 19th, 1865, news finally travels to Texas that the Emancipation Proclamation was made two and a half years before, that slaves have been living as slaves even though they were set free two and a half years before. And there was this amazing like celebration and people were, and to this day, people celebrate Juneteenth, right? It's, but there was something terrible that happened as well. There were a group of slaves that thought all my food and all my clothes, everything I've ever had, shelter has come from this farm that I was working on and I'm gonna go back there. And they chose to go back to the place that they were enslaved, even though they had been set free. And we are the same. We do that. We are the same. And so Paul says, look, let me say this in a way that you'll understand. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Let me recap this. I don't think you're understanding this, that your assumptions lead to the way that you account and your accounting leads to your actions, that, that your breakaway believing leads to breakaway choices and those breakaway choices lead to breakaway living. I don't think you're getting that. And so I'm going to say the same thing a different way. And instead of talking about assumptions and then accounting and actions, it's like a chiasm. He then talks about actions and then accounting and then assumptions. He, he basically says everything he said just a minute ago in reverse. And he says, 
just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. That is, that you need right actions. You, you need to, your actions need to be right. And he says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, right? Righteousness was not your master. Sin was. And, and you accounted for that. Like you lived as one enslaved to sin. And he says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. You go, look, th this is the, the, the way it is, that, that death is the shadow of sin. And, and your relationships and your finances and, and your, your career, all of those things are impacted by your sin and death follows and you experience little deaths when sin is ruling and in control. One of the ways this played out for, for me personally was um, when Tanya and I first got married, um, she was like, hey, I want to have kids. And, and I, I was like, oh, I don't know about kids. And, and we didn't really talk about it. Until, and, and we agreed, all right, we're going to talk about this around year five once we've gotten established. Year five, she says, hey, it's, it's time to talk about having kids. And my parents had told me, if you and, and they, they were watching the way that I had, had lived in high school, and there was a lot of fear on their, their part. And, and so they said, hey, you know, Tim, if you, if you get a girl pregnant, it's going to ruin your life. And they were talking about in the context of high school. But, but what they said is like, you won't go to college, and you won't be able to get a good job, and you won't. And they went through all these things, like, if, if you get a girl pregnant, it'll ruin your life. And, and the, the fear of that, the death of that of still clung to me, even though the sin was gone. And, and so here I am, I'm five years into marriage and, and I'm still thinking if I have a baby, it's going to ruin my life. And so for two more years, Tanya and I would talk about this and we were kind of locking heads. And, and finally she, she just gave up and, and she said, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. I'm going to pray. And she began to fast and she began to pray. And for a year, she prayed and prayed. One night I was, um, I was praying. I was, we were going through the book of James uh, with the church that we had started. Um, and I was praying for the faith of the people that were in our church. I was praying that they would be free from sin, that they would be free from the, the, the shadow of death that goes with it. And as I was praying, it was like the Holy Spirit was like, yeah, but what about the shadows of death still clinging to you? Like you still believe the lie that if you have a baby, it's going to ruin your life because you're not in that sin. And yet that lie persists with you. And, and it was like this, my eyes were open in a moment. And I was like, what have I been thinking? I, I'm free and I don't need to experience that death anymore. And so I went and I repented and I talked to my wife and, and literally two weeks later, she said, we're pregnant. And then a few weeks later, we found out God was making up for lost time and we were having twins. The, the, the death was still clinging to me, even though the sin wasn't there. I, I, when, when he talks about correct actions and correct accounting, he goes down to our assumptions and he says, look, now you have been set free from sin and you become slaves of God. The fruit that leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. So he, he basically compares, he goes, look, sin is always going to lead to wages, and those wages are death. And he's going to say that in the next verse. But righteousness is, is that is 
you are following God, it always leads to a gift. And that gift is life. Sanctification and it's righteousness. It's not a shadow of righteousness. It's like light following you. It's life following you. It's, it's, that's what goes with, with following Jesus and the, the righteousness of Jesus. His light goes with you. And so it, it, the idea of it's me versus God is a lie we have to let go of. It's not me versus God. It's me and God versus sin. And, and the sin is always going to lead to wages and the wages are death. And God is always going to give a gift. And the gift is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Breakaway living comes from breakaway decisions and breakaway decisions come from breakaway believing, breakaway assumptions. When we talk about belief and assumptions, what we're talking about is something that takes root in your mind and it takes root in such a way that you are in awe by it. And those assumptions come in and we believe it to be true and we worship. And as we worship, we begin to account things properly. It's, it's fundamentally, we are so grateful and so thankful that we go, oh, I can live from this. I'm going to make my plans based on this. And then I'm going to act on this. This is what he, Paul's talking about in terms of our assumptions, our, our accounting and our actions. And so if you are a believer and you go, man, there are, are things that, that um, I just keep doing. I feel like I'm stuck, even though Christ has set me free. Um, you have to remember that Christ didn't just die for the penalty of your sin. He died for uh, the power of sin so that you can be free from the practice of sin. And so you are free and the choices that you make are, are now able to be choices where you can say no sin and you can yield your members to God and Christ. If you are not a Christian yet, you haven't crossed the line of faith, then, then you're an Adam right? If you go, hey, I can't seem to manage my sin, it's because you will never manage your sin. It's because the shock collar's power is still alive. It is still influencing your flesh, and it, it will always influence your flesh. It will always drive you to do the wrong thing because you are not the partaker yet of a divine nature. And so for you, God is calling you to, to trust, to say, I don't want my sin anymore. I, I want the righteousness of Christ. I want all of him. And it's it, the, the choice is not about heaven or hell. The choice is about, I want life and I don't experience life. I only experience death in my sin. But if I am in Christ, I can be free and I can live a new life and I can experience life. What Paul calls in, in Timothy, a life that is truly life. That is, it's the opposite of the life of a dead man. It is life that's truly alive. And so he says, like this, this is the wages of sin is always going to be death. The free gift of God is always going to result in eternal life. If you want life, choose Jesus, choose him. And, and if, if you are thinking about choosing him, it's because he is calling you and he is drawing you. And so receive him and believe in him. Some of you are Christians and you go, man, I, I, I kind of like my sin. There's certain things I like to do. I, I like being able to do these things. And, and, and if you are believing that, then you are believing a lie, right? You, um, and, and you go, well, I, I'm still going to go to heaven when I die. Um, and you know, the truth is you'll go to heaven when you die. The bad news is 
you will bring hell to earth here. You're, you will experience all the stink of death that goes with sin. The rottenness of death will follow you everywhere you go, and you will not experience joy. If you think, like, I, I'm a Christian, but I want to keep doing these things, it's because you're just dabbling your foot in it, and you are, are thinking, oh, what's a little bit hurt? And, and that can drag on forever. This is probably bad theology. Uh, I'm going to say it anyway, and then I'll give some clarification to it. But, but if you want to dabble in sin, I say, don't dabble. Run straight at it. Chase it as hard as you can. Jump in with both feet. Because when you do that, man, you will be swallowed up in death. And you will understand this is terrible. This is awful. This is not what I want. This, I want life. Someone who's drowning understands. I want to breathe. I want to, and when you jump into sin with both feet, you will experience the, the desperation for life. Now, the reason it's bad theology is because if you do that, you're going to come back because in God's presence is fullness of joy. And when you chase after sin and you experience death, just basic human hedonism will drive you back to life. It, you, you will find yourself desiring God and desiring life. And when you come back, you will be so scarred and you will experience so many consequences. Because, because while God sets us free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, the consequences, we, we have made those choices and those consequences mark us the rest of our life. And so, so you will, will come back. And when you come back, you will be experiencing a whole lot of brokenness and that will take a long time to heal. And so that's why I say it's bad theology, but there's, there's part of me that just goes, don't, don't play around with it. Either go in or don't, you know, like it, it, make it a, a clean thing. But again, what Paul is saying is this, it starts with your assumption. And if your assumption is that life is found in Jesus, and then you begin to account for that rightly, then you will begin to act on that. And when you act on that, you will be living from the truth. And the truth is that you've been set free. Several years ago, I heard Andy Stanley um, talk about a couple that was in his church, and their names were the Mambians. And, and um, the Mambians adopted a 14-month-old girl from China named Anna. And, and when they adopted Anna, she was malnourished and small. She was immobile. She wasn't able to, to, to walk because the, the orphanage she had been in just lined kids up in cribs, and then they just left them there. So she was covered in bed sores. She, she'd never gotten enough exercise. She'd never really gotten any sunlight. And so um, she, she didn't get enough food because they didn't feed them often enough. So they brought her home, and they began to, to try to like care for her and get her to be mobile and to feed her. And one of the things that they noticed in their morning ritual is that they would put Cheerios on, on her high chair platter there, and, and she would grab a handful of Cheerios, another handful of Cheerios, and then she'd open her mouth like a bird, and she would ask to be fed. You know, she just ah, open her mouth. And, and they're like, well, maybe this is left over from the, the orphanage. This is how they did things. So they would feed her. And then they would take her down from the high chair, and they would try to pry the Cheerios out of her hands, and she would scream. And, and they're like, well, we don't want that to happen. And so they would let her hold on to the Cheerios thinking, well, maybe she's still hungry. And they would see her from time to time, eat one. And throughout the day, no matter what she was doing, no matter what she was playing with, she always had one hand that was full of Cheerios. And, and at the end of the day, they'd take her into the bath and, and soggy Cheerios would float up out of her hand. 
And, and here was little Anna. She didn't understand at 14 months that she was in a new country and she had a new home and that she had a new name and that she had a new situation. She, she didn't understand that she had been taken out of China and brought to a land that, that has so much food that we throw 80 billion tons, 30 to 40% of our food production, we throw away every year. She didn't understand that she was in with a family that loved her. She didn't understand that in her new home, there was plenty of food. And so she continued to feel like there's not gonna be enough. There's, and she began, to, she continued to clutch and it took months and over 16, at 16 months and 18 months and 24 months, she finally began to let go of the Cheerios because she realized the truth. And the truth is I don't have to hold on to these the same way, but we do the same thing. We have feelings and, and these feelings are, when, I, when, when this happens, I always do this. And, and I always respond this way. And, and, and we hold on to the thing that was not believing the truth, not believing that we are, are citizens of a new country. We have been given a new home. We have a new family. Our father has given us a new name and he has provided for us everything that we need for life and for godliness we have through our knowledge of him. And so, so if you are in Christ, it's time to take the assumption, the thing you believe, and, and to assume it more clearly, to worship in thanks and say, Lord, you have done this, and I'm going to begin making my plans based on this and my actions, and I'm going to say no to sin, and I'm going to say, you cannot have the members of my body. My, my members have been given to Jesus, and, and when Every day we yield our members to him. We begin to be able to live free and we break away from the lie that, that the shock collar is still on us, that it still controls us. And, and whilst that shock collar is always there, it's powerless and it has no hold over us. And so this week, I just want you to encourage you, begin to, to speak to your sin. No sin, you cannot. And begin every day to think through the members of your body and yield them to Christ and, and say, you are my king and these are yours. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the power of God into salvation. And we pray that you will make us a people who believe rightly about sin and about righteousness, that we believe rightly that it is not us against you. It's us against our sin. And you are with us because we are in Christ. Lord, I pray that you will give us freedom of the truth and freedom in our practice. And Lord, that we will do this out of joy and adoration for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.